recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. Let's go. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up, turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchy and you and Christy. Welcome to episode 53 of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your host, Cam McMurchy, with you and Christy. Hello, Cameron. Ewan's an employment lawyer and partner Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada and online at duntroon.law. I'm a PR guy in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications newsletter at digitalbitspr.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please share that news with a friend. And you can follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram and Facebook and even subscribe to the podcast on YouTube and SoundCloud. How about that? And uh, we have a newsletter as well. You can get that at prlawpodcast.club. Good, uh, good evening, Ewan. How, how are things? I'm, I'm well, Cam. You know, they say uh, what a difference a week can make or a day can make. Uh, I remember last week, you know, I was sort of complaining about the lockdown, the situation here. And now I'm uh, I'm speaking to you, Cam, as someone who's had their their first vaccine dose. My wife's had her first vaccine dose, and um, yeah, it's, that's it's, you know it's a whole new world, man. That, it's a whole new world that came together quickly because you know I did go for my first dose Monday, and I know we talked about that last week, and you know it was it was great actually it was really an organized process here there were a lot of people getting their getting their shots i had the pfizer biontech one and no side effects everything super fine uh but yeah and then i find out right away you you got yours as well so what was that what was it like the experience well it was fine i mean i had some pretty i had some pretty nasty symptoms the next day i had uh sort of a you know bad uh, bad headache and shivery and feverish and aches and pains and all that kind of jazz but um you know what uh that just means that my immune system is doing what it's supposed to do and uh, that the vaccine is working so these are these are good things i haven't heard about those side effects so strong on the first dose Uh, like most of the time it's been the second dose that people have talked about especially with the pfizer vaccine um you know i I do have a couple of friends that really went through a, a difficult time for about 24 hours um before bouncing back quite quickly so I, I'm bracing for my second dose. That's on May 10th. And I, I may even take that day off work, actually, based on what other people have said. But the first dose was fine. Uh, is it normal on, on the vaccine? You took the AstraZeneca one, right? Is, is the side effects being so strong on the first dose common with that one? Yeah, I mean, at least from from what I've been seeing on uh, on Twitter, yeah, it, it it seems to be quite common. Um, but again, you know, I I don't want to like the last thing I would want to do is to freak people out and get them into a position where they're 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 considering not getting oh, yeah. a vaccine just because they're concerned about these side effects. I mean, again, um, you know, Gen X is having a bit of a moment here, Cam, in, in, in Canada, particularly in Ontario, because we we sort of ended up with a brief, I mean, surplus is probably the wrong word, but we ended up with an actual kind of stockpile that did not last of AstraZeneca. And that was largely as a result of, of sort of boomers being concerned about AstraZeneca efficacy rates and blood clots, side effects, et cetera. And, you know, that's when Gen X basically stepped up and said, hey, hold my beer <laughs> and, and just jumped right in. Um, there were just some awesome Twitter threads going around, Cam, about this. Um, 
Yeah, why actually, Gen I'll, X? I'll, I want to read one because this is fantastic. Why in just particular? before we start. Why this Gen is X? great. So why Gen X? In partic- why Gen X in particular? Well, because they lowered the age. So they basically said, okay, um, you know, if, if the boomers aren't, aren't stepping up quite as expected for, for the AstraZeneca, we're going to lower the age. So if you're 40 and up, um, come and get it. And we, we, we did. So that, that's kind of what, what happened very, very quickly. Um, and there was this one tweet, Cam, it's fantastic. It just, you know, Betsy Hilton, whoever you are, I'm going to give you a shout out here. Betsy Hilton tweeted uh, a vaccine with minuscule. Don't even worry about it. Risk, please. This is Gen X. We ate pop tarts for breakfast and got babysat after school by young and the restless. <laughs> we spent decades on oral birth control and now we're crashing all the pharmacy websites for that sweet, sweet AZ. Um <laughs> And that's kind of how that's kind of how it went down. So there were just these incredible, really sort of um, almost inspiring threads, Cam. I mean, you know, you hear this all the time about we're we're all in this together. We're all in this together. Um, But when you're hearing it from people who are sort of in your same age group (laughs) that have kind of lived similar, similar cultural experiences to you in terms of, you know, pop culture references, movies, music, that kind of stuff, um, all tweeting this stuff out and sort of the hangovers as they're referring to it for, for, you know, kind of like a 12 hour period after the AstraZeneca drug, it it is sort of, it's almost been kind of life affirming of like, Hey, this, this, this is good. We are in this together and we're making progress. The one cool thing about the vaccine process is just that the whole world is kind of going through it at different stages. Cause I think it's fascinating that there was such, such an emphasis on Gen X in a way, because I mean, obviously Gen Xers in this part of the world have had access for a very long time to the vaccine. And so it hasn't, it's never been, um, an issue to talk about via generations, I guess. Like it's just never, it's never really come up, but I guess the the second one is I, I would guess, I mean, Gen Xers are known for being slackers. So I'm kind of, I'm kind of surprised <laughs> that they've been so proactive on this. Actually, Well, I think, you know, the one thing you can say for, for Gen Xers versus the stereotypes. And again, let's be honest, these are all stereotypes, um, but about the Xers versus Gen Y and Gen Z. One thing you can't criticize Gen Xers for being is snowflakes, right? (laughs) I mean, we did not grow up in any sort of snowflake-like situation. We are almost, you know, we are considered the lost generation. So I thought it was just, there was something so appropriate and priceless for one generation effectively saying, oh, I don't know, but there might be some side effects and, you know, the efficacy rate I've read, it's not as good as the Pfizer one. And then all of a sudden Gen X piles on and says, cool, get out of the way. We'll take it. <laughs> we'll take it. We don't mind. Bring it on. Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to askus at prlawpodcast.com. That's all one word, askus at prlawpodcast.com. Or on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. That's hashtag P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. Keeping with the COVID-19 theme, I believe you are going to talk about one aspect of that being remote work today. Yeah. You know, we, we've spent a lot of time in the show cam talking about the, the pandemic's impact on the workplace, right? But what about 
the post-pandemic workplace. We are gradually, slowly, but surely getting there. Certain parts of the world are getting there faster than others. Um, you know, in the, in the U.S., about 42% of the population, at least as I, as I last checked on the, the CDC website, has received at least one dose of the vaccine. Yes. And, you know, they're now administering close to 3 million vaccines per day, which is really, really just remarkable when you think about it. Um, and, you know, as a result, a lot of companies, particularly in the U.S., they're now starting to introduce and are really seriously framing their return to workplace policies post-pandemic. Uh, so this also applies around the world in a way. And it's also interesting because, again, like we've, we've gone through, um, you know, some workplace closures and working from home in Asian countries as well. But it has been shorter, I think, on average than in North America, because, it, you know, even in my own company, which is a global company, like our U.S. staff have been not in the office now for over a year. Um, you know, that we, we sent them home last March. And they haven't come back, whereas we've maybe spent two months at home or three months at most the entire time. Um, and it's been mostly in the office the whole time. So there is a difference here, too, in terms of pace and in terms of the magnitude of the shift. Because if you haven't been at work for a year, um, it's a big deal to go back, I feel like. Whereas if it's been a shorter time, it almost feels like an extended holiday in some ways rather than, than a big sort of transformational shift. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, I think that's I think that's kind of bang on uh, for a lot of people. It hasn't been a transformational shift at all. Um, I think what's sort of interesting is where companies are starting to, you know, they're, they're looking at the employee experience and they're looking at what employees want and what they don't want and trying to develop policy around that. And that can often be a really precarious endeavor as an employer. Yep. And it can be fraught with all kinds of prickly issues along the way. Um, and I think that that's why it's such an interesting to sort of to sort of look at. I mean, you know, there's sort of three companies already that have kind of come forward and said, hey, this is this is what we're planning to do. You know, Google, for example, um, you know, they've said they're going to move to a, to a flex model where employees will spend at least three days a week in the office and the rest at home. Um, Microsoft, they've said they're going to move to a hybrid model where employees can work remotely up to 50% of the time. And then, you know, Ford Motors, they're sort of taking a different tack. They're, they're going to leave it up to managers and their workers to sort of determine the optimal balance of time to spend at home and spend in the office. So again, you know, a lot of companies are already taking some very, very clear steps in what what their back to work plan is going to look like. Yeah. Is there any consensus yet? I mean, I know there's no data, obviously, because this is brand new. But like, what are you hearing about, you know, th the way that most companies want to go or the way that it appears it, like, is there a way that appears to be gaining momentum uh, or a model for, for returning to the office? Because those are all quite different, the ones that you just mentioned. Yeah. So there, there was, um, and, you know, 
one of the one of the sources I wanted to talk about, Cam, I know we, we, you and I have off air. We've talked about this many times, but Andrew Ross Sorkin, who writes the um, the New York Times yes. daily uh, deal book newsletter, which is fantastic. Um, anybody listening, if you don't subscribe to the New York Times, it's almost worth it just for the for the daily deal book newsletter. It's really it just has some really awesome content. And Andrew Ross Sorkin is the one who puts it together. Sorry, Cam, were you, you were about to say something? No, 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 that's right. I, I just wanted to vouch for, for Andrew Ross Sorkin as well. Um, yeah, it's, it's a great newsletter. Actually, everything he writes is good. So, Yeah, and I mean, he, he sort of addressed this, um, this issue earlier in the week, and he interviewed a number of experts, and I, w- I want to sort of talk about some of that in, in a minute. But in sort of an answer to your question, there was... There was a sort of um, a survey that was done. And interestingly, of course, the perspective of what the employers want versus what the employees want is is sort of markedly different. Um, the most, you know, most employers, or at least in the in the survey response, there were more employers that wanted their employees to continue to come in um, at least three days a week more than, you know, any other option that was sort of presented to them. And then interestingly, there were more employees that responded to the same survey that said that they would like to work from home five days a week if given the option. Now, again, I think it was 29% in both categories. We're not saying and it wasn't an overwhelming majority in either category, but um, it was still the most popular answer um, for employees was to stay at home five days a week. And the employers was to, you know, have them work from the office at least three days a week. So I don't think that that is any sort of general consensus. It's Mm -hmm. one survey, but I don't think that that's that far fetched that most employers want their employees to be in the office at least, you know, three days a week to be able to keep tabs on what's going on. Yeah. I actually, I wanted to ask why in your view, um, I mean, I think we know why employees would rather, you know, work from home or be flexible. Why do employers want their staff to come into work so badly? You know, again, I, I think this is, it's a very, very difficult question to answer because of course, it really specifically depends on the type of work that you're doing. I think probably the the easiest answer, Cam, if I was to sort of give you a sort of the, you know, the softball response, it would be that generally speaking, um, management are of a generation where, you know, the idea of working remotely was never part of their working environment. So this is still somewhat of a new idea. I, I don't, I don't think it's any stretch, um, to suggest that younger employees are obviously more comfortable with the tech, more comfortable working remotely. And there's always going to be that sort of struggle between junior employees and more senior employees who by definition are typically older, right? So I think it's still just that shift that has yet to occur in the upper echelons of a lot of professions, not all of them, obviously. Um, You know, I think, I think tech for obvious reasons has been one that's been quick to sort of um, change course and adapt in this regard, but more traditional professions. I mean, we, we talked a couple of weeks ago, Cam, about Goldman Sachs and some of the, you know, some of the, some of the vitriol they've faced from, from junior employees about um, their current work arrangements. So 
I don't know. I don't know if that, I don't know well, if there's a clear answer. I know that's very muddied and I'm sorry. I can't give you a, a more clear response. Yeah, I, I kind of asked that on purpose because it's interesting that you brought up the, the age, age differences because like, I know a lot of older people that also would like to work from home. I guess I didn't think of it in that way. And, and I was kind of getting to the point of, is it a job requirement? Like, is there something that you have to go into work to do? Like you mentioned GM, like if there were people on the manufacturing floor, like they can't do that from home. I don't even think there, there's a manufacturing floor anymore, I guess, maybe for workers at GM, but you know, you kind of get my point. Whereas, you know, for, for a lot of jobs, if, if it's a, a knowledge economy kind of job where you're sitting in front of a computer and you're typing things in or you're doing research or whatever, like that doesn't, it doesn't matter where you are. And then in that case, like, I wonder if the biggest obstacle still here is trust. I mean, I have a team. I've had a, I haven't been a manager for that long. I don't think I'm a super manager or anything like that, but I honestly don't care where my own team is when they do their work just because I don't, I, I also want that freedom. And I think at the end of the day, I, I work a lot more probably than I need to because there is that freedom. Because when you're at home or you're out and about, it work sort of blends into a lot of other things that you're doing. And I think ultimately the employer ends up getting more out of the employee. I know not everyone is that way, but I am wondering if there still is that, that just old school mentality that still has to be broken down a bit in terms of you're not working unless I see you at your desk working. Yeah. Well, I mean, I can tell you it absolutely exists in the legal profession um, for, for one. And I don't think that we, I don't think that we're alone. I think there's a lot of other professions that function the same way. I mean, to sort of take a bit of a step back in, you know, in Andrew Ross Sorkin's newsletter, um, he interviews Robert C. Posen and Alexandra Samuel. They, they co-authored this book, um, which I'm definitely going to check out. I don't know if you've heard of it, Cam. It's called Remote Inc., how no. to thrive at work wherever you are. Okay. And they sort of, they sort of zero it down, you know, to whether or not a particular company is going to function well in with a hybrid approach, like a, a work from home and work from office and what that balance is going to look like. They sort of, in trying to address that question, they zero in on, on five sort of key issues. Um, the first one they talk about is, is function, right? So what kind of work does the business do? I mean, more collaborative tasks, they're obviously going to require more time at the workplace, right? While more sort of deep focused work, you know, you can certainly benefit from, from kind of more one-on-one -on -one time at home, just sort of sitting in front of your computer without any, any sort of interruption. So that's sort of the first point is function. The second one is location, I mean, where are the employees based? If, if they're all in the same city, then, you know, presumably on some level, they can benefit from time in the office. But if they're scattered across the country or the globe, um, then obviously a physical office space isn't going to provide much benefit. Um, and schedule, which is another point, sort of dovetails into that one, right? Um, you know, if everybody is sort of working on a similar schedule in a similar location, then again, there is going to be some benefit to, to people working in the same physical space. But if they're scattered across a bunch of different time zones, um, that's going to be really, really difficult. And you're probably going to have to focus on having, you know, kind of a, a few sort of key hours where everybody calls in for a video conference or instant messages, those sorts of things. 
I, um, I guess like y- you said in there, you know, pres- if they're in the same city, presumably there's some value for them to come to the office. I guess it's that assumption that I think we have to challenge because I don't know that that's the case. Like, I honestly don't know if that's the case. Um, when you go into the office, you are fighting with uh, a commute. Most people are dealing with a commute. Uh, either on public transit or on in a car and there's traffic and you're waking up earlier, theoretically, possibly getting less sleep. Um, and there's a lot of distractions in the office also. Like, I, I really don't know if we can just take that assumption at face value and then just move on. I think we we do have to question it. And I, and I do think, you know, one of the things that you mentioned is sort of meetings. And I find the transition for me has been easier because even when, even before the pandemic, for the few weeks I worked before the pandemic, um, we used meeting software. Um, we have a Zoom-like alternative, even in the office. I mean, we, we, I have not picked up my you know iPad and walked to a meeting room and sat down and had a meeting like that even once um, because everyone just connects to the meeting from where, wherever they're sitting in the office. Um, and I think that's been a nice transition because once you get used to doing that, well then, yeah, you may as well be at home or in Hawaii or, or wherever, because it's, it's literally the same process. Uh, it's no different no matter where you are. Yeah, you're right. Well, I, I mean, and, and that sort of goes into the next point, Cam, which is the issue of workplace culture, right? And this is always mm-hmm. sort of that kind of gray area kind of amorphous floating in the ether issue that uh, is is can, is often really, really difficult to put your finger on, right? I mean, what mm-hmm. is the workplace culture? Is it a very, very old school culture? Um, you know, even if, if, is there idea of remote work giving people sort of 12 year old antiquated brick like laptops to take home and then try and dial in to some remote network. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, workplace culture is very, very, very specific, even within a particular profession, right? Even in finance, even in tech, even in law, uh, name your profession, you know, one company to the next, one firm to the next, the workplace culture can be markedly different. And depending on how that culture is structured, and as we've talked about before in the show as well, Cam, more often than not, that starts at the top, right? That sort of tone from the top and the idea that it sort of filters down from there. What kind of culture is is your company trying to promote because in many ways that is going to going to dictate just how well um, these sorts of hybrid approaches to working in the office and working from home are actually going to function. Yeah. And workplace culture, you're right. It is kind of um, ephemeral kind of thing that's hard to pin down. But even in the communications field, it's it's critically important to build that internal workplace culture. Um, it shouldn't be something that's just left to kind of evolve on its own. Like there should be effort into defining a culture the way that you want to define it. And then carrying those, those, those things out. Um, actually doing the work to build the culture that you think is going to be successful for your company. So I definitely agree on that being a, a critical point. Yeah. Well, and I think that a lot of companies are inevitably going to be having an identity crisis as they go through this, right? Because when they've had, particularly those companies that have had more of a traditional hierarchical structure and actually structure is sort of the the last, the last point that Posen and Samuel talk about in their book. And, you know, their, their argument is that the evidence seems to suggest that sort of a flatter hierarchy supports more virtual work because, you know, it kind of in essence levels the playing field between, um, 
between employees and companies as opposed to sort of that more traditional hierarchical mm. structure. And I think there's definitely something to that, to that argument as well. And those very old school, traditional hierarchical companies, I, I don't doubt that they're probably going through a bit of an identity crisis right now, Cam, saying, well, how do we, how do we facilitate how do we develop or modify um, or revise our culture when all we've ever done for however many years is run in a very, very sort of traditional hierarchical structure within a bricks and mortar office? Um, you know, I think yeah. it requires a great deal of thought on the part of these companies. Some are clearly doing their due diligence in that regard and they're consulting with, with counsel. They're consulting with good um, HR reps. They're consulting with communication experts such as yourself um, and PR people, but a lot aren't right. A lot are just sort of winging it. And I think they're doing that to their detriment and perhaps even to their peril because, you know, this is the new normal, as we've said so many times, Cam, and I think a lot of companies are going to get left in the dust. Absolutely. Anything else you want to add on this, Ewan? Yeah. I mean, just, just sort of one other point that I wanted, I wanted to make that, that Sorkin addresses, Cam, and that's, you know, who wants to be working from home post pandemic and who doesn't. And the fact that this isn't random. So, you know, one of the people that Sorkin talked to is is Nicholas Bloom, who's a, a professor of economics at Stanford. And, you know, Bloom determined that among college graduates with young children, that women want to work from home full time almost 50 percent more often than men do. And that, you know, that obviously raises all kinds of issues, Cam, particularly around determining who advances and gets promoted within a company and, and who doesn't. Mm -hmm. Um, and according to another study that Bloom had conducted actually in China, remote employees had a 50% lower rate of promotion than their colleagues in the office. So you do the math there. If we know that if, if, if what ends up being the result is that more men are physically working in the offices than and more women are working remotely, and there is a clear correlation between promotion and working in the office, then we're very quickly going to just further that gap between the seniority level of men and women in the workplace. And that's a problem. And that's something that needs to be addressed now while we're developing these policies um, before, you know, things get dire and we're looking at this sort of five, 10 years down the road where the statistical evidence is just completely out of whack and women have completely lost their, lost their place in that regard. Show your support to the PR and law podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRNLawPodcast.com. That's PRNLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out. You know, you and there's all these lists on the internet. I mean, people say you should do a listicle because they get shared more on social media. And, uh, you know, it's, it's eye-catching and people love lists. Um, I certainly get that. And there's a lot of lists out there. Um, and I came across one this week um, and I clicked to take a look at it. And actually, this was one of the first ones where I thought, wow, this is actually 
really helpful. And it also kind of aligns with my thinking, which is, which is probably another reason why, why I liked it. It was confirmation bias, but, um, <laughs> right. the, uh, the, the, the article is actually in PR daily and it talks about five changes you must embrace for 2021 for communicators. And I, and I thought all five are actually bang on and they're kind of, they're relatively new or they're still evolving. Um, and so I kind of wanted to just bring them up today because I think there's, there's a lot to chew on here for, for communicators. So you and uh, the first one, you know, we've talked on this podcast so many times about third party validation, right? And having, yeah. you know, if you're going to announce something at your company or you know, if you're going to even announce a new product or service or something that you want somebody outside of your company to talk about that um, and to maybe provide a quote for the press release. So, you know, like I worked in a, in a provincial government in Canada for a few years and they were great at this. You know, we, we would announce a government program, but before we did that, you know, we would go out and talk to local small business people or whomever it might be and say, like, you know, what do you think? If you give us a quote, we'll put you in the press release. And we got a lot. Um, and it looks fantastic when you're sending something out and it's already got support, uh, you know, from the community or from stakeholders right, right in there. But I think, you know, the number one here is that we have to go further than just that and, you know, take a look at things like surveys or other data that we can include to back up our point. And original data is actually never, it's never been easier to collect or compile than it is today. And you can also, um, another option is hiring an agency to do a survey on your behalf, um, something like that, or get um, a company to do a, a white paper, something along those lines, to, to push out there to support what you're doing. And this is so pertinent right now. I think one example is, you know, you in the MIT Technology Review, you know, it's a periodical that takes a look at the industry, but actually they do sell a lot of space in there to brands and they will, uh, you know, and I've talked to them, um, you know, they, they, they will take what, what you want and say, okay, we'll go and do a study on this subject, you know, with these parameters and come back with a finding, you know, that is, that is agreeable to your company and run it. And it runs under the MIT brand. So it looks good. Like it looks great. Um, and, and it really bolsters kind of your, your, your messaging and, this is this is big. I think it's growing. I think these these two areas are sort of one is that sort of MIT example of almost like a like a paid advertorial, but it's not quite like they actually do the research and create a white paper, um, and then also just coming up with data on your own uh, through through surveys or whatever it might be. Um, and both of these are are really getting a lot of attention now. Right, but but let me get this straight. So MIT will go out and conduct a study for you that will come to whatever conclusion you have effectively asked it to come to is that is that how that works um i wouldn't go that far so i, I mean i they're not they're not going to publish something that's not true but you have to give them something where again i'm sort of peeling back the uh the the curtain here but you would want to frame something in a way that is it, it is real like the findings are real and legit but it might mean that you're phrasing it a certain way or approaching it a certain way um you know if, if it's something outrageous i mean and they they can't do it then they, they can't do it it's not, it's not just 
you know, I want you to say this and they go ahead and do it. Like they can come back to you and say, we can't say that. Like, it's just, there's no evidence for that. Um, so it's not a hundred percent just paid, like whatever you want, they'll print, but they're willing to kind of help out, um, to get answers for you. Um, and, and hopefully they align with what, with what you're trying to achieve. Right. And of course the fundamental principle just being that there's an inherent value obviously for a business or a corporation to have some statistical evidence that it can sort of readily rely on, um, for the purposes of generating interest or, or business as opposed to just your typical run of the mill, you know, PR or, or advertising speak. Yeah, exactly. You know, another example of this, uh, a slightly different is, um, there's the Forbes councils, I don't know if you've come across this, Ewan, um, but Forbes, you know, the publication has put together these councils on specific um, industry sectors. And I think it's like 2000 US dollars a year to join. But once you're in uh, and like I'm a member of the communications, uh, the Forbes uh, communications council, there's a lot of resources. There's a lot of opportunities to you know, have uh, an article published. So I could write something that Forbes would publish, you know, on communications um, and it gets out there. And this model has been a huge success for Forbes. Um, and there is some speculation that other, other publications may, may sort of go down this same path because like I can tell you with the, with the Forbes communications council, they give you a lot of resources to do all kinds of different things. I mean, they've got forums, they've got, um, interview opportunities. Obviously, you can write an article. From time to time, they will send out a series of questions, and they're kind of open-ended questions. And you know, if I take the time to respond to them, maybe those quotes will appear in an article about comms that Forbes is writing. And so, you know, this is literally like you, you pay to join. Usually, obviously, the company will pay for you to join, um, and and you potentially can build your thought leadership through through something like this. Um, and it's effective. And I have seen, I have provided quotes to Forbes, which have turned up in articles. And I and it has been seen by other people who have come back to me and said, hey, Forbes quoted you on something without realizing that it was almost like a sponsored post. And it's all there. It's it's all up front. But but these kinds of things are, are growing. And yeah, for sure, they're effective. Wow, that's fascinating. And it just almost like an earworm, right? You sort of embed it into a piece which gets linked to another piece and, you know, three and four, five, six pieces down the road. And you now have five or six pieces online that inevitably all link back to you and your particular yeah. business. That's yeah, that's really smart. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's interesting because I had come across that last year and it was the first time I saw it. And, you know, now that I'm a member, again, like there's just it's filled with resources for your profession, which is just great. Um, so the second one is build your own platform for thought leadership. Um, and I, I, there's a part in here that I, I want to quote from. But when I say thought leadership, I think most people are thinking of you know, maybe writing a blog or, or having a, a person go out and speak you know, if your CEO is speaking at some sort of event or something along those lines where you can demonstrate your company's expertise or your own expertise in, in some particular field. But there's a quote in here, uh, which I'm going to read now. Uh, Quickly throwing a blog post on your site is no longer sufficient. Readers want to be engaged with authentic stories, entertained with compelling visuals, and inspired with challenging concepts. And it says there's never been a better time to prioritize owned media and build a separate editorial style news site. So, 
It's recommending sort of a new site that covers emerging industry trends, customer successes, um, you know, provocative viewpoints, it says. I, I'm about 90% on board with this. I, I'm still undecided about whether you should create a separate editorial style news site. I think there's one company, Ewan, that's known not just in China, but internationally, um, who's done this, which is Alibaba. Um, it's the large Chinese tech conglomerate behind um, you know, the Alibaba online service or Tmall, Taobao, all of these sorts of things. Um, and they have created a separate website called Alizilla. And if you go to alizilla.com, I believe it's .com, you're presented with what looks like a large news website. And it is, actually. You know, there's videos, there's infographics, there's articles on everything that sort of Alibaba is doing and, and things, things from their sector. And it, it's really professionally done. And, you know, I know some people over there who are working on it. Um, they've got a really talented content team sort of churning out material for that site. I think it's excellent. The, the part that I'm personally unsure of is putting it on a site called AliZilla.com because I don't know how anyone w- would know that that's where they should go for, for this yeah. information. And, you know, I, I've, I've run some numbers on their website um, visitors and it's not that high. Like it's, it's, it's a, a far cry from their corporate websites traffic. So, well, I mean, but can't they just, I mean, is it really so challenging to incorporate that into their corporate website traffic? Like, I mean, I, I, well, I don't I, like, I get you, I get it separate and apart from blog, right? Yeah. Click on our blog. I, I get that. And I, I can certainly understand how that is going, you know, the way of the dodo bird and that we've really got to pick up our game. But I mean, does it, to your point, why can't they just incorporate that sort of in their main brand? Yeah. That's my thinking too. Um, I, my guess is, is that they didn't want to, sort of confuse their their main website because again for these companies it's sort of like Amazon like if if you want to read about Amazon the company you can't really go to amazon.com because if you go there you're looking at shopping <laughs> like if you want their financial statements or if you want their CEO's message or like like all of these normal corporate things where you would normally go to that website you can't for these e-commerce companies because that's not where they're putting that stuff I'm guessing that has something to do with it because if you go to Alibaba's corporate site, there's their information. But if you want their news stuff, you've got to go to a different site. I still disagree with it. I think why not incorporate them together? Because ultimately, and I think we deal with this at Tencent a little bit, especially for a Chinese company, oftentimes people in the international markets might not be familiar with who you are. And so your website does have to have uh, an explanatory component to it. And sometimes these companies choose to break those two things apart. So one, one, you know, their corporate website can be explanatory and they can put their news somewhere else. I still disagree though. I, I think we should put it all together. I think when you show up on a, on a website, you should be able to see the latest company news, but also go more in depth. Like if you want to take a look at a company's board composition and you want to take a look at their CSR report, or, it, it should all be there. Um, but I don't, I personally don't see why these things need to be uh, broken apart. Yeah, I'm with you. Like, I'm I'm not going to go to Amazon Illa <laughs> yes. to get to get their other aspect of what their business is. I, you know, I feel like same thing. It should it should be incorporated in the main into the main site at least until it's a known quantity on its own, right? For sure. The third one is reputation management is non negotiable. That's an interesting way to put it. Basically, 
you know, it's, it's emphasizing again that we need to listen and respond to what others are saying online. I do agree with that for sure. I mean, you know, there, there's no company now that can just not pay attention to the web or to social media. Like it, there's not, there's no company that has that, that luxury at all. Um, there's just, I mean, everything is online now. Right. And so, you know, seeing what people are saying, what they're posting about you, what they're saying on social media or forums, um, you obviously need to track that stuff and ideally engage. You know, there's a lot of tools out there now, which have what's called a unified inbox, where you just have a column on your computer that you can leave open. And if someone messages you on LinkedIn or Twitter or TikTok or Instagram, or it goes into that inbox and you can just respond and it'll go back to them. Um, you know, these sorts of things try and keep it simple rather than having, you know, trying to track all of these different sites and all of these different things going on um, and make it easy to, to, to respond. But here's the, the key quote that I wanted to mention, because I think that the listening part is well known already. Here's the new part. Make sure you understand which review sites appear in searches for your top keywords and proactively make sure you have a strong brand presence with fresh messaging, imagery, and recent positive customer reviews. So, for example, in Hong Kong here, we have Yelp. I think, uh, you know, obviously North America has Yelp. We have Yelp. But if you were to come to Hong Kong and go to Yelp automatically to get your restaurants, it's not going to be that impressive because we already had a player there that's been there for a long time called Open Rice. And if you are a restaurant and you're opening up in Hong Kong, you, you would need to know that. It's not just get your Yelp profile up and start promoting it. You would also need to know what open rice is because that would be critical to your, your, your business in this particular city. Now there's a whole bunch of other review sites like that in other parts of the world for other sectors that you would have to know about because Google does surface these things. And so, you know, like you and on, on your firm, for instance, like I can see you do have a Google, my business account for, for Duntroon and I can see customers leaving reviews of your business on there. I think that's great. You know, that's, that's the, the right way to do it. But Google My Business is only one facet of that. There are usually other things too. For instance, again, if you're a hotel or if you're a restaurant, TripAdvisor would be one that you'd have to take a look at. Um, all of these things uh, have to be considered. What do you think a company should spend on this though, roughly, Cam? Because like I take the point, right? Reputation management is non-negotiable. Fine, get that. Um, but what, you know, what a company can throw at that in terms of resources and, and, finance, I mean, just money, um, obviously is going to vary greatly depending on, on the size and structure of the company. So these things are, um, so at the beginning, if you're just starting out, I would say just get on the platforms. They are free. These, these don't cost anything. Um, you, you can list your, your company in Google, my business or TripAdvisor or Yelp or whatever it might be. Um, and to go ahead and do that uh, create a Facebook page. That's also free, right? These, these kinds of things, Instagram is free. So that's the first step is to just make sure that your business is represented in the key areas where people are looking for information about your sector, right? Your business should be represented in those, in those spots. That's the first step. And then I think the second step would really be seeing what's happening. I mean, you have to monitor this for a little while. People always say, especially on social, you want to listen first and that might take months. Actually, I don't recommend that, but some people recommend that. Because only through listening can you see where, like, what are the, the trigger points? Where are the discussions happening? What do they tend to be? What are the views that tend to pop up? All of this stuff will inform any 
sort of proactive or even reactive uh, messaging that you push out there or promotions that you push out there. Um, so that's the first step. I don't think you need to spend much on this, though. I, I, I really don't. And in fact, you can do this without any cost outlay in terms of, of cash uh, at all. There's going to be some time in setting this stuff up. So that's a resource that you'll have to have a bit of um, in order to do this. But 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 otherwise, it shouldn't be very much. And I think when, when you do a, a campaign, that's something that you can think about at the time, how best to go about it, how much, what is your budget, what's the best way to spend that. Um, and that can be discussed sort of when you're ready to do that. The fourth one, uh, PR strategy should drive user experience. This is one that I, th- I feel like I've sort of, pushed without knowing and it's so important and so again it says off the top here you know user experience is often siloed within the website team but 2021 is the year for communications to build bridges and extend pr strategies to ux user experience to ensure that audiences receive a consistent brand story from first exposure to final conversion i i actually think this is big. I mean, if you're out there, if you're on Facebook, if you're promoting, even if you're buying old-fashioned radio and TV ads or billboards, whatever people see on there, once they get to your website, it should be a seamless continuation of whatever that was. Like, you you want to hold their hand all the way through. I, like, I can't tell you how many times companies would run, and I see this all the time. I'll get an email, um, you know, about some promotion or some new good that's in stock or something. And I'll click it and it'll take me to the homepage of the website. And I, I have no idea. Like, like it's, I don't know. Am I supposed to search for it now? Like what, what happens now? Um, and that, that's awful. Like it should be handholding right through. We talk about landing pages a lot. I mean, if, if you are doing a promotion, create a single page for people who saw that promotion and clicked on it, create a new page just for them. So they come there and they say, hey, you've come from here. Thanks. Like, yeah, this promotion is great, blah, blah, blah. You know, sign up here, whatever it might be. Those landing pages are really important. And you have to think about that now, Um, not just, you know, push out this promotion, but think about what the whole experience is from from the marketing right down to to the sale. Yeah, I completely agree. That's almost it's it's like straight up false advertising or that's how it feels, right? You receive something that oh that looks interesting, you click through and you get there and you're thinking, "Huh, well, so you've clearly dedicated some resources and money in getting me to click here in terms of in terms of the, the you know the initial piece of uh, piece of propaganda up front, but it's entirely inconsistent with either your brand or your messaging or your layout or your color scheme or all of the yep. above, such yep. that you know it's almost as if you've put the the carriage before the horse. Yep, absolutely, and you know another thing here too, you and it says third party validation is just as important on your website as it is off your site. So make sure you're reminding visitors of these trust signals like earned media coverage, analyst quotes, safe checkout badges. You know, a lot of companies in the U.S. have the Better Business Bureau kind of badge on there. All of that stuff is good. Um, you know, keep reaffirming the uh, the buyer, the shopper's choices as they go through this. Um, I, I think it's great. I do th- see a lot of um, businesses are using earned media coverage more. So, you know, if they do an interview with TechCrunch or The Verge or something like that, if it's a tech product, um, you know, they'll, they'll incorporate that quote onto their website um, as validation. That stuff's very, very powerful. It, it works. The fifth one, last one, Ewan, is Google has joined your PR team. This is an interesting one that I really hadn't considered at this level. 
but it's sort of asking companies to think beyond just search engine optimization. So I think people listening to this podcast would know what SEO is. I mean, it's basically just making sure that your site turns up in Google searches and how it looks when when it turns up in Google searches. Um, but this is saying go beyond that. So here's the quote that I've sort of pulled out of this one. The growth of Google's own properties, such as Google My Business Profiles, Knowledge Panels, Google Reviews, and Map Listings, presents a prime opportunity to tell your story and engage with customers before they even step foot on another website. This is quite interesting because they're right. If you open Google Maps and you start uh, looking around you and you see it, you know, a restaurant or a barbershop or like whatever it might be, you can tap on that and you will see customer reviews right there. And this is how a lot of people are finding businesses. You don't think of it off the top of your head, but it's just one of those things that happens. And I've used maps for this, usually when I'm traveling in the before times, and it, it works. It's important to pay attention to these these kinds of things. So I, I mentioned Google My Business profiles um, earlier, but I think the map listings, the Google reviews, all of this stuff is something to definitely keep in mind. Yeah, the map listings is really interesting. I've, I've noticed because obviously I get push notifications from Google for, for, our own, for our own firm. And I've noticed so-and-so found you on Google Maps looking for whatever at such and such an intersection. I thought, remember the first time I saw it, I thought, what? what? I, <laughs> I, I don't even understand how does that even work or what's going on? And then I sort of looked into it a little bit further and yeah, you're absolutely right. That is exactly how a lot of people find businesses mm -hmm. is through navigating the Google maps app in, in completely unrelated themes or looking for something completely different. Um, it's, it's fascinating stuff, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So those are the big five. Um, I am going to put a link to this in the show notes because the writer does expand on these theories, but I wanted to bring them up just because these are really things that I completely agree are important and they're relatively new. Like they're often things that communicators do overlook. And so it's sort of a combination of an evolution of, of technology and the services that are out there, but also on the, on the other hand, really just pushing forward with these services into new areas. So people may know about Google My Business, for instance, but you know, there's more that you can do on there probably than you think. Uh, and so, yeah, that's why they're, they're, they're effective. I think they're very important. I think these are things that you cannot just ignore uh, because your competitor is not ignoring them. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Check this out. Whoa, hey, check this out. No, no, wait, wait, oh, check it out, check it out. I want you to check this out. On the PR and Law Podcast. What do you got, dog? Well, Cam, you know, in the spirit of my uh, my Gen X nostalgia yes. bit off the top, my recommendation for this week is uh, is the new album by Dinosaur Junior, Cam, and the, the album's title is "Sweep It Into Space." Oh, we should have played uh, a bit of it. Yeah, we yeah, we probably should have. It's it's great. Uh, Dinosaur Junior. They're a they're a Gen X rock band from from Amherst, Massachusetts. You know, for anybody who's not familiar with them, Cam, you know, they're just one of these sort of unabashedly electric guitar driven sort of grungy sounding rock mm -hmm. power pop bands that still sound like it's 1992. <laughs> And they're apologizing to no one for that. <laughs> um, wow. You know, like, is there anything revelatory about their new record? Nope. Um, <laughs> it was co-produced by Kurt Vile. 
it sounds just like any number of Dinosaur Jr. records. But you know what? Um, I'm okay with that. Something comforting. Sometimes, sometimes familiar is okay, Cam, particularly right now. So, you know what? Um, Gen X is having a bit of a moment around all the vaccine stuff here. So, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to break out my uh my vhs copy of uh of reality bites to throw some oh, yeah. uh some pop tarts in the toaster pop tarts were <laughs> all sugar like i and you know after you mentioned them earlier in the show i, was, I actually kind of crave one i was thinking about because it's, it's morning here right i'm thinking yeah, I, could, I could go for a pop tart right now yeah pop tart you know maybe uh sip on a capri sun cam you remember those oh yeah um, of course yeah listen to Hootie and, and the Blowfish. Uh, uh, yeah well well i i'm gonna i'm well, gonna crank the new dinosaur junior record i think uh yeah. but maybe on the cd player maybe i'll maybe i'll buy it on cd i don't even can i buy it on cd can you still do that i don't even know if you can I, do that i know i can buy it on vinyl um i, I guess can, i could probably get it on cd i think I, i'd love to know what cd sales are now actually like i, I have a cd player i i think i mentioned i got a a a a vinyl player, a record player for Christmas, but built into it is a CD player and an AM FM radio. <laughs> so I, I do have it. <laughs> no CDs to play there. All right. Well go, go crank the new dinosaur junior record cam. All it's right. uh, it's, it's just fun. It's I'll a lot of it. fun. What do you, what are you recommending this week? Uh, I came across a, an article that kind of made me, made me laugh. Um, but, but was also filled with, uh, new information and it is, it's, uh, in BuzzFeed News, and it's titled, Why Am I So Bad at Typing? And it's got some spelling mistakes in the, in the title. And it actually takes a look at some of the science behind typing and typos and what's happening when we're making mistakes and how to think about what's causing different mistakes. But one of the interesting parts to this is apparently... Um, researchers are still not clear what's happening in our brains when we are typing that it's really like it's using so many different parts of our brain to pull together that it's actually quite impressive. Um, And it does take a look at how there have been cases where really fast typers have had a stroke or they have been hit with Parkinson's disease and forget how to type overnight. Like it happens in an instant. Uh, and this is something that, that, that doctors have been looking at uh, as well. But I do want to read this, this, this one quote here. It says, the physical act of typing requires communication among different regions of the cerebral cortex, one for visual input, one for physical motor strength, one for motor coordination, one for planning, etc. These regions communicate with each other via the circuits called white matter tracks. It is currently thought that dystypia is caused by disruption of one tract called the superior longitudinal fasciculus. Now, this um, dystypia is what happens when you forget how to type. This is actually kind of a, it's kind of a funny article, but it's also interesting. Like it's genuinely interesting. And it's something I had never really thought about in any depth. But imagine you, and if you could not type, like think about how critical that is to to your day. Yeah, I I, I can't imagine. It's, um, 
yeah, I mean, I, I think for the vast majority of us now, right? I mean, our our work day is dominated by sitting in front of a computer and and typing. I, I, I mean, it, it's such an essential skill to so many jobs. I mean, you'd be you'd be completely lost without it. And it did remind me because there is a the, actually this is a Gen Xer as well, the person who wrote this and talked about the typing uh, the typing tests in school. I don't know if you remember that yeah. Ewan from high school. I but, do. I know, do. Yeah. I, I remember the typing speed and. Uh, you know, Keith, a, a buddy of ours, we did the, uh, you know, they had different, different, um, levels of difficulty on typing, but the first one was just typing J, 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 F, 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 J, 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 F, 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 you know, on the home row. And we yeah. spent hours trying to get the fastest speeds on that one. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I, I, this is kind of what made me laugh too, because we got so good at it and, uh, we were hammering away at the keyboard. And I remember the teacher getting really upset because, uh, we're focused on just the easiest one and getting the highest score. But uh, yeah, it was fun. Typing's important. That's the moral of the story. Well, I know you and I have talked about this before because I, you introduced me to notability on the iPad, yes. which has really been sort of a game changer for me. And it's got me back to a place where I'm actually handwriting yeah. again in, in a way that I never did before. And, you know, I, I know there's, there's, there's certainly evidence to support this, but the the active thought process that you, it seems to be engaged and maybe it's, you know, maybe that's a generational thing. I don't know, but when you're actually handwriting versus the passive, the more passive act of typing really, really resonates with me in terms of my ability to just retain information that when I write it down by hand, it seems to stick and yet I could type it out and it's like it goes, you know, goes in one end and right out the other as if I, you know, completely forgot it or never heard it in the first place. You know, I rely on the audio record function of Notability um, because my handwriting is awful. Like it's it's awful and I can't read it. And actually, like I, my mind is going too fast to handwrite. Like, I, like as someone's talking, like I want to get it down, but I can't I can't write fast enough. But then I agree with you. If I type notes, I end up almost transcribing what's happening rather than thinking about like key points or key takeaways, um, which is a problem also. So kind of for me, neither of them work. I usually will type and then yeah, I have the audio record function so I can go back and, and have a listen if I need to. Huh. Yeah. All right. Anything well, else? You you We're near the end here. <laughs> nope. That's that's it. That's literally this weekend. Figuratively. That's it. Yes. Okay. Well, uh, thanks so much for, for joining us again on episode 53 as we're well into 2021 now. Last, uh, last show of April, I think. Yeah, I think so. Uh, thanks for joining us. Don't miss a show. You can subscribe in your podcast app of choice or to our YouTube and SoundCloud channels. And we're on all the socials as well as our newsletter at prlawpodcast.club. So for you and this is Cam, light it up. This has been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and Ewan Christie. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support.